Good morning. Welcome to worship. We're so glad that you're here today. Our service begins today with our children's choirs leading in worship. Would you just welcome to our service today? Amen? Amen. We're delighted that they're here. And they lead us in worship now as we begin. So our choir's focal passage for the year is Galatians 5, 22 and 23, which says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And it's always good to be welcomed to church with singing from our children's choir. That's our grades one through three choir. Parents, if you have a child that was up here, stand so they can see you so they know where to come back and um, sit, okay? But we want to welcome you to First Baptist Church Pineville where we do life together. We are glad that you are here to worship the risen Savior our Jesus Christ, our Lord, this morning. If you're a guest, we ask that you would take the connection card that's found in your bulletin, your worship guide. Fill that out, and at the end of the service, you'll have an opportunity to um, pass that in. Or if you're a first-time guest, we ask that you uh, meet our pastor, Stuart Holloway, and his wife, Rebecca, out in the foyer area. And he has a gift for you, a copy of his book, The Privilege of Worship. We are glad you are here today. Join me as we pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come in your house this morning and to hear praises sung to you, Father. And to sing praises to you as we lift our voices this morning. May you be honored and glorified in all that is said and done in this place this morning. God, I pray that we would just um, hear from you today, Father. And that we would be obedient to whatever it is you put on our heart to do this week, Father. As we come and we go throughout the week. May we remember to share you with others that we come in contact with this week, Father. God, be with us during this time of service. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Let's stand together today and praise the Lord together. Everlasting God, this strength will rise as we worship together. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait. 
This is my father's world. Sing this hymn with us. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and around me rings the music of the
Amen. 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 Please be seated. Our fourth through sixth grade choir leads us in worship now. Shall we pray? Lord, we come here today just so blessed. We have your son and his life and his death and resurrection that makes us blessed beyond measure. Uh, 
not to mention all the things you've blessed us with in our life, Lord. And I pray that all of us here, no matter what, where we are in our life, we realize how blessed we are. And at this time, we just find it in our heart to give back a portion to you that you command us to do so that we can further grow your kingdom. Christ, let me pray. Amen.
Today's message is entitled, A Tale of Three Trials, and you can go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 18, John chapter 18. Court trials capture our nation's attention. Over the last 25 years or so, memorable cases dealing with everything from murder to corruption to abuse have captivated us. Defendants like O.J. Simpson and Timothy McVeigh, Michael Jackson, Scott Peterson, Kenneth Lay, uh, Aaron Hernandez, Bill Cosby, Casey Anthony, all of those people have become household names or had their household name changed because of the case that they were in. Uh, This week, we watched as actresses Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman, along with numerous other wealthy parents, made court appearances in the college admissions scandal. And, um, you know, it it makes us wonder, how dumb does your kid have to be for you to pay $500,000 to get them into school? Uh, These trials interest us, though, and, and we're intrigued by them. But none should interest us as much as the three that we encounter this morning in John chapter 18. One of these trials was fake, but appeared to be real. And the two others were real, but the defendants didn't even know they were on trial. And like the defendants I already mentioned, each of the people on trial in John chapter 18 have become household names. We know them, Jesus, Peter, and Pontius Pilate. Jesus will face a fake trial in the courtrooms of Jerusalem, and Peter and Pilate will face a real trial in their hearts. It all began late that sacred evening 2,000 years ago, where we begin reading in John chapter 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. The city of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas at the time would have been filled with travelers for the Passover celebration. And on this particular evening, Jesus wanted to get away to a private place. And he chose the Garden of Gethsemane. He had been there many times with his disciples when they would travel to Jerusalem. But also Jesus went there perhaps because many significant things happened in gardens. If you think about it, creation and time and life began in a garden. And in that same garden, sin entered the world. That first sin caused such a havoc that it changed the whole course of humanity. But ultimately, there's going to be another garden in the heavenly city that's going to have a river of life running through it and a tree of life growing in the middle of it. That first garden, Eden, was a garden of disobedience and sin that destroyed the course of humanity. And on this particular night, the Garden of Gethsemane would become a garden of obedience and submission that began the restoration of the course of humanity. And ultimately, heaven will be a place of delight and satisfaction for those people who have received the restoration offered by Jesus' submission in Gethsemane. 
That name Gethsemane means oil press. And you know that was the, it was a, a garden of olive trees. And probably within that garden there was an olive press so that the uh, people who had that garden could pick those olives, put them in the press, and press them down to get the oil out of those olives. And what a picture there of suffering and being crushed to bring something out. And in the coming hours, Jesus would go through the oil press of obedience to the plan of God. Now, to get to that garden, the disciples and Jesus had to cross the brook Kidron, for which the Kidron Valley is named. Usually it's dry, but only in the rainy season or when there's an unusually heavy rain does that valley fill with water. And since it was spring at the time this story is happening and the time of late rains in Israel, there was probably some water in the brook. But water wasn't the only thing that ran through that brook. For you see, when the temple was built, there was a drain built from the base of the altar down into that valley so that as the animals were sacrificed, the blood from the altar could run down and run into that valley. In fact, Kidron, the name, means uh, dusky and gloomy, and it gets its name from the color the water would turn as it had that old and dirty blood running through it. During Passover, some 2,000 lambs were slain. And so when Jesus and his disciples stepped over the Kidron, it could have been red with the blood of sacrifice already. So there's rich symbolism here as Jesus steps over the blood of sacrifice to become the one sacrifice. He steps over possibly the blood of hundreds of thousands of lambs to become the sacrificial lamb. We don't know how long Jesus and his disciples had been in the garden that night when Judas and the mob of Roman soldiers and temple guards approached. But Judas knew exactly where to go because it was their spot. A spot where maybe Jesus had taught. A spot where maybe Jesus had prayed with his disciples. And so now Judas leads them right there. It's interesting also to consider what a large group Judas brought with him. The NIV says a detachment of soldiers. Your translation may have a band or a cohort or even a squad. And if those words refer to the Roman order, a Roman cohort would have been a tenth of a legion, which would have been 600 men with soldier with swords. And if you add to that the Jewish temple guard with their clubs, you have a huge group going to arrest Jesus. Now, it's not really likely that Judas brought 600-plus men into the garden that night, but it's evident from what John says that it was a ridiculously large number to go out and to arrest a Galilean carpenter in the middle of the night. Now, no doubt the Jews and the Romans feared uh, some kind of uprising. They, have, they were afraid of a riot if, if they arrested Jesus. But really, in the middle of the night, in a semi-private garden, this was overkill to show some force. But no matter their force, the power of God is what shows through this event. So look now at verses 4 and following. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. 
And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Dr. Roger Sullivan, who taught me the book of John in college, said that Jesus goes to his cross like a king to his coronation. And we see that in this passage. We see here that Jesus is in complete and total control. The mob comes carrying torches and, and, and lights as if they're going to have to look under every nook and cranny to find Jesus. Remember, Passover happened when full moon is taking place. So it's not like you had a lot, had to have a whole lot of extra light to see somebody outside. But they go as if they're going to have to look for him. And Jesus steps out and asks, who is it you want? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replies with the powerful name, I am he. That name, as we've seen many times in John, goes all the way back to Moses when God revealed his covenant name. And John has picked it up several times, not the least of which are his seven I am statements throughout this gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. But now we have simply I am he. And it may be simple, but the force of the statement toppled the mob. Did you notice that? The force of Jesus saying, I am he, caused them to fall back and fall out. Why was that? Well, I think it's because for one last time, the same voice that had told the sea to be still and to be quiet, the same voice that had commanded demons to come out, the same voice that had said, Lazarus, come forth, now spoke again and said, I am he. And friends, the voice of God has power. The mob couldn't stand against it. And so, as someone said, in a very real sense, the mob did not arrest Jesus. Jesus arrested the mob. And Jesus asked them again, what do you want? And they say, we want Jesus of Nazareth. This time he must have used his inside voice because he said, I am he. They didn't fall out. And he says, leave the rest of these guys. He protects his apostles. But at least one of them wanted to protect him. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter lunges forth, likely aiming for the head, misses Malchus's head, and cuts his ear off. It's here that Peter's trial begins. You see, Peter's trial is one of a crisis of belief, which Jesus had predicted just hours earlier. Remember, Peter said, Lord, I'd lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, really? Would you really, Peter? Because I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Maybe that was in the back of his mind. I'm not sure, but in, sure, but in this moment, Peter is brave, 
We see no other disciple making this move. At that moment, Peter was prepared to fight a war of one to a hundred, all for the sake of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, Peter had courage at the wrong moment in the wrong way. Jesus says, put your sword away. I have to drink this cup. As one commentator writes, Peter fought the wrong enemy, used the wrong weapon, had the wrong motive, and accomplished the wrong result. But, I would hasten to add, don't be too hard on him. Because he had courage like no one else in that garden. And have you ever had that same kind of courage to fight for Jesus? Peter's bold. Well, we continue reading in verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials, officials arrested Jesus. And they bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Throughout his arrest, Jesus is in complete control. We see his courage. We see his deity and authority. We see his protective love and at the same time his extended hand of healing. We also see his complete obedience as he takes of this cup which his father has for him. This cup of death for the salvation of the world. Now Jesus had the power to stun the mob. And he had the power to heal a severed ear. If he had that kind of power, he had the power to save himself from arrest and from trial and from death, but he willingly submitted. And he did that for all of us. And John reminds us of that. In case we've forgotten what Caiaphas said a few chapters ago, back in chapter 11, when he said, don't you guys realize it's better for one man to die than all the people? John reminds us again here and says, Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews. It'd be good if one man died for the people. And John's saying, because he's about to do it. Caiaphas had no idea he was speaking prophecy. Caiaphas was probably about as far away from God as you could get, but he spoke truth that night. And John reminds us, this is not Satan's show. This is Jesus' show. Jesus is in complete control. And so, Let's read on, but as we do notice something, John takes Peter's three denials and inserts a portion of Jesus' trial between them. And that seems to be calculated on John's part. While Jesus is being questioned, Peter is being questioned. While Jesus is speaking truth, Peter is speaking lies. While Jesus is speaking and standing up, Peter is standing down. Let's notice how this goes in verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's court. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who uh, was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. And he replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Now, traditionally, the other disciple that's 
named there, the one that's just called the other disciple, has been identified as John. And John was probably able to go on into the high priest's courtyard because he knew the high priest's servants. Uh, some scholars have suggested that maybe John's father Zebedee and his fishing business provided the salt fish, which was a common staple of the day, for the high priest's home. And so maybe John had made deliveries many times through the years. But Peter, however, is not known, so he's not allowed to go in. So here on the outside, Peter faces a trial on his inside. And here, the man who had just taken on a mob of men cowers before a servant girl. Now, why the change? It's because the devil made it easy. And here's what we mean. The way the first two questions are asked invites a negative answer. You're not one of his disciples, are you? When someone asks a question like that, the easiest way to respond is, I'm not. It's like when the little kid shows up at your door one afternoon at your house and they've got some half-melted, world's-not-so-finest chocolate, and, and they say, you don't want to buy any candy, do you? And you say, no, honey, I'm sorry, I don't. But if that same little kid comes up with their melted world's not-so-finest chocolate and they say, sir, would you please buy some candy from me? What do you do? Oh, sure, honey, I'll get you some candy. It's all in how the question is asked. Well, perhaps this servant girl knew about Peter. Maybe she wanted to make this easy for Peter. So when Peter said no for the first time, perhaps he thought, okay, good. I'm covered up. I can be kind of undercover and be a spy and see what's going on. But you see, Peter wasn't in a good place because now he finds himself near some more servants and some more officials who were warming themselves by the fire. And look at verse 25. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. Again, the question is asked in the same way. The answer is easy. I am not. The devil is making it easy for Peter. Be aware of the enemy's subtle ways. He makes the harmless harmful. So we have one denial, then two denials, but the devil has softened up Peter now. And so notice the third question in verse 26. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? And again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. This question is different, isn't it? It invites an affirmative answer. Didn't I see you in the garden? Didn't you cut off my relative's ear? Now Peter is at the real test. Because Peter is faced with not an easy answer. Because this question invites an affirmative. Didn't I see you? Yes, you did. But Peter takes the other answer. With denial. No. Peter denied. And at that moment, the cock crowed. 
Jesus had said it would happen, and now it has, and Peter's trial was a crisis of belief. In a moment of heroism before a mob, he risked his life for Jesus. But now he denies him in front of a handful of people. You know, sometimes it's easier to stand up for Jesus when you're surrounded by other people who believe. But when you're all out there alone, it's hard to stand up. It's interesting to pause to consider something else here. On this particular night, two disciples actually betrayed Jesus that are recorded, Judas and Peter. But their ultimate end was far different. Judas hanged himself. Peter ends up being a leader of the early church. What was the difference between the two? One word, repentance. Repentance made all the difference. Matthew got, Matthew's gospel tells us that Judas was filled with remorse. Matthew also tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Both men knew what they had done. Both men were sorry for it. But there is a difference in sorrow and repentance. Judas was very sorry. He even gave back the money. But he then went out and hung himself instead of going to the Lord for forgiveness. Peter, on the other hand, went beyond mere sorrow to the step of repentance. We don't know when it happened, but obviously in those difficult hours that followed, Peter did business with the heavenly father because later he's right there in the midst of the disciples again. It could have been the same for Judas, but Judas never turned his heart to Jesus. Instead, Judas hung himself. But there's something else kind of here going on as well. Do you remember when Judas left the upper room? Jesus said, what you need to do, go do. And, and Judas goes out and John makes a statement, and it was night. And it's a chronological statement of time, but it's also a spiritual statement of what was going on in that moment in Judas's heart. But here, notice when Peter leaves out, there's a cock crowing because it's no longer night. It's the dawning of a new day. And that's what happens when we come to God in repentance. He reaches out the hand of forgiveness and he picks us up and walks us into a new day spiritually. Aren't you glad God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and and when we fail big time, he extends that hand of grace. If we reach up, we find that he's already reaching down to grab it with his mercy and forgiveness. And he opens that door to a new day of forgiveness. And at his trial, Peter is convicted. But the judge of all the earth later pardons him when he repents. While Peter's going through his trial, Jesus' trial begins. Let's look back at verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I've said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? And then Annas sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas was the former high priest. 
having been deposed by the Romans, his son-in-law Caiaphas was now the current high priest. And Jesus had already royally ticked off the high priest family several times. He had kicked out the money changers, which hit their pocketbook pretty hard. He had led some people away, which uh, caused them fear of losing their position and prominence. And so Annas, merely in this little mock trial, wanted to find some kind of evidence that would lead to a verdict of capital punishment. Well, Jesus tells Annas that, well, man, hey, I did everything in public. Everyone saw it. And so you need to ask some of the people who saw what I did. Uh, Jesus' law, or Jewish law specified that witnesses should be called before a prisoner was called in in question. But Annas defied their own law and pulled in the prisoner first. It's interesting then that John records none of the words of Annas and only the words of Jesus. And remember, John was apparently in there able to hear everything. So he doesn't record the lies of Annas. He only records the truth of Jesus. Instead of recording Annas's questions of Jesus, John records Jesus's questions of Annas. Again, Jesus is in control. This is not Satan's show. It's Jesus's. And so Annas punts to Caiaphas, and we pick up the story in verses 28 and 29. The Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? We easily see here the pompous air of the pious, joy-sucking Pharisees. They can't go in to this Gentile's home and defile themselves because then they wouldn't be able to eat the Passover. But they have no problem sending an innocent man to his death. They're despicable, and they were absurd. Pilate comes out to them. It was early in the morning, so I've always imagined Pilate kind of stumbling out of bed when he hears this group coming, putting on some clothes, going outside like, what do y'all want? And what smacks of irony here is that history tells us that Pilate was no friend of the Jews. He was an ambitious opportunist. And Pilate had ticked off the Jews numerous times. And his administration uh, in Judea was noted for political mistakes and revealed severe character flaws. But nevertheless, these Jews come to him. In verse 30, we read, If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. The Jews were accusing Jesus of blasphemy, for which their law in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, verse 16, prescribed stoning. But the Romans wouldn't let the Jews inflict capital punishment, and so they needed the Romans to take care of Jesus. But verse 32 tells us that far more is going on here than meets the eye. That's because Jesus had said he, when he died, he would be lifted up. You can't be lifted up when you're thrown down and stoned. You could only be lifted up 
on a Roman cross. Again, this is not Satan's show. This is Jesus' show. He is in complete control. The Jews, from start to finish, were trying to use Pilate and the Roman law for their purposes, but God was using all of them for his purposes. Uh, Given Pilate's background, such an issue, judging Jesus' case, really shouldn't have been that big a deal. If the Jews wanted him killed, kill him. What was it to him? But for some reason, it was not a simple matter for Pilate. We read an interchange here that happens between Pilate and Jesus, beginning in verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. And with this he went out again. To the Jews. John records much more discourse between Pilate and Jesus than any of the synoptic gospels. Apparently, Pilate meets with Jesus privately, privately inside and then goes back out to deal with the crowd. And it's in those private moments with Jesus that Pilate's trial is held. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And the you there in the original language is emphatic. So Pilate's question is really something like, you're the king of the Jews? You've got to be kidding me. This peasant? This carpenter? Really? Given Pilate's tone, Jesus' reply then might sound a little bit smart aleck. Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? But Jesus' reply is not smart aleck. Instead, Jesus is very calculated in his response. Here he does not say, I am the king of the Jews, because if he had said that, that would have taken this into a political realm, and Jesus doesn't want that. Jesus is not wanting to make an enemy of Rome. He is on a spiritual assignment for a spiritual kingdom. He's not dealing with the political kingdom. Jesus doesn't want to pick a fight with Rome. He's fighting this unseen spiritual opponent. And so Jesus' statement, my kingdom is not of this world, shows Pilate that he's no threat to Rome. Then notice how Pilate responds in verse 37, that first part. Did you see? You are a king then. But notice Jesus' response again, taking it to the spiritual. You're right, In fact, it's for this reason I was born. For this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Jesus' answer threw Pilate into a quandary. If Jesus had proclaimed himself an earthly king, Pilate's decision would have been easy. Execution. But a spiritual king? I mean, politically, Jesus was guilty of nothing. And if this guy thinks he's some kind of spiritual king... Well, that's no big deal. That's no big 
threat. So Pilate is faced with a real dilemma. In fact, Pilate is on trial. What is he going to do? Will he declare Jesus innocent or will he placate the mob? Will he stand for the truth or will he fan the flames of lies? Unfortunately, though Jesus is the king of truth, Pilate has no idea what truth even is. And with exasperation and sarcasm, Pilate replies in verse 38, what is truth? And he walks out to speak to the Jews again. Pilate didn't want an answer to that question, and neither do a lot of people. When on trial before Jesus, they throw up their hands and, and, and they escape responsibility. And that's what Pilate does. He goes out to the people and he says, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. And now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Pilate knew the truth, but he would not stand for the truth. Like Peter, Pilate cowered and is convicted in his trial. Pilate is more interested in saving face with the Jews than he was in doing what was right. And so he fanned the flames of lies instead of dousing them with the truth. Jesus' mock public trial has been the background of these other two private trials. Peter and Pilate were convicted in their trials. Well, what about Jesus? Well, in one sense, he's declared innocent. But in the other sense, he's convicted nonetheless. Why? Because he took our conviction. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died in the place of everyone who will ever respond to him. We've talked about three trials today, and in reality, there are four. Because you see, every time we read the trial of Jesus, we are on trial as well. We are presented with the, the same question of Peter. Believers, will I stand up for Jesus when I'm questioned? Or will I deny him? Non-believers are, are, are faced with the question of Pilate. Will I respond to the truth of Jesus? Or will I cower before the opinions of other people and throw up my hands and walk away? The trial of Peter is the daily trial of every believer. And the trial of Pilate is the trial of every non-believer. May we stand on the side of truth. May we listen to Jesus. May we stand for him. May believers stand up and give witness and testify and live for him every day. And may those of us here today who have yet to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior receive him today and walk into the truth. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to the message. I'm going to pray, and our leaders are going to come up to lead us in a song of invitation. But 
Before we do that, I want to make sure that, that you are sure in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you came here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus and, and never walked with him, there's never been a moment in time where you realized that you were a sinner, you admitted that sin and you received Jesus into your heart, then I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That in these moments, in just a moment, when I pray, that you'll say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you died on the cross for my sins, and I now receive that righteousness that you give to me, that you declare over me. And from this day forward, I want to walk with you. And if you pray a prayer something like that, just simply from yourself to Jesus in these next moments, then when we stand and sing in a few moments, I'd encourage you to come forward and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer, and I, I have Jesus in my heart now. And I want everybody to know because we want to celebrate with you. It may be also that you're a believer today, and, and there's been some, some pressures, maybe in your family, maybe in your, in, in your workplace, and you're, you're wanting to cower down. But may you take this time to say, Lord, help me to stand up. Help me to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you thanking you for salvation and grace and forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Lord, as we're on trial today, we pray, Lord, that we would follow you. Some of us in repentance and faith, some of us in repentance and standing up strong for you. But, Lord, whatever the call that's placed upon our lives, may we follow you with determined faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.